and Confidential, Bean Towns, True Crime Podcast. Boston is a great city, but there's more to it than the Freedom Trail and Fenway Park. There's a startling underbelly to the city, and Boston Confidential will take you on a guided tour of the dark side of the Athens of America, Boston, Massachusetts. Hey everybody, welcome back to Boston Confidential. My name's Barry McGuire, and I'm your host. I'm a 20-year private investigator on the streets of Boston and I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. Just wanted to give a quick shout out to this week's sponsor, Podcorn. Podcorn's a marketplace for podcasters and advertisers. It's super easy to use, What you really do is you just follow the prompts on Podcorn's website. You submit your bids and the advertisers contact you. And in terms of getting paid, it's the easiest thing ever. When your podcast posts, you just submit it to Podcorn and the money is electronically deposited right in your bank account. It really can't get any easier. Do yourself a favor and let the advertisers chase you for a while. Focus on the content of your podcast. Use Podcorn, you won't regret it. Very easy to use. All right, guys, let's get to it. Today we're covering the murders, the home invasion murders in Cheshire, Connecticut. I know we're stretching the geographical boundaries of Boston Confidential, but if you remember, in my introductory episode, I stated that as Bostonians, we believe all parts of New England are merely suburbs of Boston. So this is going to extend about two hours or so to Cheshire, Connecticut. And if you're not familiar with this case, I should give you a warning right now. It's a horrible case with graphic family violence. So please, if you're not up for that type of episode, you might want to skip this one. Also, guys, you're going to be listening to this episode during Christmas week. And I wanted to wish each and every one of you a Merry Christmas in a happy holiday season. We're so happy to announce on Boston Confidential that last week was our 25th recorded episode. So we've got 25 episodes behind us and we've just recorded over 13,000 downloads. I know you're probably not familiar with the podcasting world, but in podcasting, that is a phenomenal success rate and I owe everything to you guys. So continue if you would, sharing these episodes when you see them. And if you have a friend who listens to podcasts, forward them to him. Also, reviews on Apple Podcasts do an amazing amount for a podcast. So if you get an opportunity, maybe a little Christmas present for Boston Confidential, give us a good review on Apple. It's kind of hard to find, I know, but if you can write out a review, I'd really appreciate it. All right, guys, so we're on to the Cheshire, Connecticut home invasion murders. If you're not familiar with Cheshire, and I certainly wasn't when this occurred, I do remember this case, but I wasn't familiar with the location. Cheshire is not a commuting location from New York City like, say, Stanford is. Cheshire is about two hours from New York City, so there's not a lot of commuting going on into the city. And the closest major city is Waterbury, which is about 15, 17 minutes away. And it's a beautiful community, very suburban, but there's about 35,000 residents. So it's a larger suburban community. 
So guys, since there's so many moving parts to this case, I'm going to break it down into two episodes. Part one, I'm going to introduce you to all the players in this. And part two next week will be the crime and the controversial police response to the crime. So this will be episode one. This home invasion murder in Cheshire is probably the most notorious murder in Connecticut history. It received some of the most publicity I had ever seen, and the publicity was warranted. This crime was heinous, and it highlighted the problems in the parole system, Connecticut and everywhere else in the United States. And this was 2007. This is pretty recently. They parole violent people, and they classify burglars people who break into homes as nonviolent criminals for parole. And that's just dead wrong. And we'll touch more on that next week. But this is a violent crime. Burglary, home invasion, is a violent crime. They classify it a lot of times as a crime against property. It's a crime against the people who live there. And in this case, the crime was horrendous. The victims in this case were the pettits. And I'm going to introduce you to all of them. There's four of them. The dad, William Pettit, Dr. William Pettit, was a renowned endocrinologist. And his resume is so vast, it's going to be difficult to tell you exactly what he did. But he was an author. He wrote several books on diabetes. He was a nationally known expert on diabetes. He had his own practice. He was either on the Board of Health or the head of Board of Health for Plainville, Connecticut. So this guy wore a lot of hats, and he was preeminent in his field. And he was also a very nice guy. Everybody knew him in the community, and he participated in all his kids' school events. A great dad, great father, and a great doctor. Deserved none of this, what was about to come. And his wife was the same way. Jennifer Hawk Pettit. She was originally from Pennsylvania, and she met her husband while she was working at Children's Hospital, Pittsburgh. She was a cancer nurse for children, and she married Dr. Pettit in 1995, and they moved to Cheshire shortly thereafter. Jennifer Hart Pettit was also very active in the school system in her kids' school. She was actually employed as the nurse at one of her kids' middle or high schools. I forget which one it was. But everywhere she went, she was loved and respected. She was on top of her game as well, and things were going well for the Pettit family. Their oldest daughter, Haley, had just been accepted to Dartmouth College in the Ivy League, and things couldn't have been going better for Haley. She was a cross-country runner and played on varsity basketball and varsity crew. And she got early admittance into Dartmouth and planned to study medicine come that fall. So she was an honor student. She was on top of her game and an athlete. She was actually fighting MS. And she sponsored something called Haley's Hope. And that was her walkathon team. And she took a lot of joy from that. So rounding out the family was Michaela. She was born in 1995. She went to Chase Collegiate School, and she was a budding chef. She would find these recipes, collect all the ingredients, and cook for her family, and she started to really enjoy that. She was also into sports as well and planned on taking over Haley's multiple sclerosis efforts, and she was going to change the name to Michaela's Hope. 
as she took over and Haley went off to college at Dartmouth. So things were going great for this family until they ran into two individuals, and I'm going to introduce you to them next. All right, guys, the people who conducted this heinous, heinous crime are Joshua Komasajewski, age 27, and Stephen Hayes, age 44. They were both from the metropolitan Cheshire area and had been in and out of prison their whole lives. Stephen Hayes first went to prison in 1980, believe it or not, yet we keep letting him out, parole, probation, hug, kiss, whatever. Then he harms people, then we do it all over again. Joshua Komasajewski, and I know I'm probably butchering that name, he was 27, he was the younger of the two, obviously, and he appeared to be the brains of the operation. These two gentlemen met in prison, and then they went to a halfway house together, Stephen Hayes ended up going back during this time to prison because he couldn't stay off drugs. Joshua Komosajewski actually came from a great family and that would have placed him high in society. This was the Komosajewskis were an actual blue blood family from Cheshire. Joshua's parents, Benedict and his mother, Jude, were described as being active in the arts or prominent in the arts. And that's just a blue blood way of saying that they were loaded. And they were. And Joshua grew up on an estate with three or four acres to play on. Every advantage in the world. He was adopted. He was actually adopted at about two weeks old. He had a sister, Naomi. But his parents were very religious. And they took in foster kids. Then they homeschooled everybody on their estate. So... It seems like the Komosajewskis had it pretty well, but it was a strict, strict area. Joshua, as a kid, would go away to religious camps and all that. They were all homeschooled, like I had just mentioned. But at age 14 in 1995, Joshua lost his grandfather, John Chamberlain. He was kind of the patriarch of the family. Joshua was devastated by this loss and also something Joshua would later reveal the same year, he was raped and later continually sexually abused by one of the foster kids the Komosajewski family had taken in. During his younger years, Joshua had a lot of friends. He went away to these camps, these religious camps, and he seemed to do pretty well at them. And he made some lasting friendships, but people would say Joshua was kind of manipulative and he could get people to do his bidding without much effort. So 1995 seems to be a pretty important year in Komosajewski's life. His grandfather passes away. He gets sexually abused or raped by one of the other foster kids that they had taken in. It was also around this time that Joshua started breaking into local homes. They had this expansive property on a few acres, and Joshua began in his young teens by breaking into these properties. Sometimes he'd break in while people were home and just move things. So it was kind of a strange psychological sequence here. He'd break in, move things. We've seen the same thing with Daniel LaPlante. I think it demonstrates a deep psychological problem here. Other times, Joshua would steal money, break things, and all this other stuff. So he became adept at breaking and entering at a very young age. And he continued this, and he got caught. He got caught, and 
some of these breaking and enterings by the homeowners. And at that point, he's such a young juvenile that they basically brought him home to his parents. Joshua's drug use and his breaking and entering developed hand in hand until age 21 when he suffered his first arrest. And he was arrested in March 2002, and he had broken into 21 local homes, stolen a ton of stuff from these neighbors of his. This was all within a one or two mile radius of his home in Cheshire. And don't forget, Joshua Komisajewski, they have family money. They have more money than they know what to do with. Anything he wanted was at his fingertips. Legitimately, he didn't have to do this. But by age 21, he was a serial burglar and he got caught. Josh's criminal record indicates during this first arrest when he was 21, he had broken into 10 homes in Bristol, Connecticut, two in Burlington, Connecticut, six in Cheshire. He would use high-end night vision goggles to do this type of work. And this he saw this as a job. If all these burglaries were taken individually, he'd be facing over 50 years, 60 years in prison. So, I mean, these are all 10-year felonies. And what came out at these hearings, at this trial, was that Joshua liked to break into homes while people were home. Most burglars, right, they're in it for the money. Not so with Joshua. He wanted to be in there while the homeowners were in there asleep. It was a psychological thrill for him. And it was a looming indicator of what would come next. So as Joshua's appetite for burglary and drugs increased, so did his appetite for a young woman he had been dating. He was totally in love with a woman named Jennifer Norton, who was barely 17 years old. And at this point, Joshua was 21. So a bit of an inappropriate gap in age, in my opinion. But at this point, it's the least of Joshua's worries. Naturally, Jennifer Norton gets pregnant and goes on to have a healthy baby girl named Jada. The biggest shock in all this is Joshua was a great dad. He took the baby everywhere. He was super involved. Naturally, both their parents were helping them out, both sides of the family. But Joshua was described as an excellent dad. So he was hoping to turn his life around, but now he was facing probably 30 years at a certain point. I've read the transcripts at this sentencing hearing, and Joshua really acquitted himself well. We know now that he was naturally full of shit, but his parents were very big in the community, and they were very well known. Part of the sentencing transcripts states that the father thought originally that Joshua should not get treatment for his being a victim of sexual abuse by this foster kid that they had taken in. And now he's come around to the fact that he's got to go outside of his religion to get Joshua this help. And they go round and round, and it's a big typical cry fest, right? It basically goes, I was an abused kid. I have a baby on the way. I didn't mean it. I'm only 21. I have a family support system that will help me through this. I just want to get on my feet and raise my daughter. So that's basically how it went, and I'll save you from the rest of it. Joshua was ultimately sentenced for all those burglaries to nine years, six of which were on this special probation. So it's not as long as it seems, but they wanted him under the supervision of the parole division because the prosecutor in this case was supremely concerned 
that Joshua liked to break into homes that were occupied. Now, this information was supposed to be relayed to the Department of Parole, and part of Joshua's special parole was supposed to have tighter restraints on Joshua because of the psychological thrill he got from breaking into homes that were occupied. This information was never relayed to the parole division. It's just a typical oversight in the criminal justice system in Connecticut and nationwide, really. So for that whole string of burglaries, home invasions, whatever you want to call them, he was sentenced to nine years, six of which would be on special probation. So immediately he goes into jail, but soon after that, they're preparing him for parole almost right away. So in researching this case, guys, I read a book called Murder in Connecticut by an author named Michael Benson. And in this book, I highly recommend it, by the way. I don't know if the author introduces him, but there's a section from a retired police officer in Cheshire, Connecticut, named Bill Glass. And Glass goes on to tell the story of how Joshua actually terrorized his young daughter's best friend. And this is where the case kind of goes off the rails a little bit because we're treating burglary, again, as a crime against property, but it's really a crime against people. Glass went on to say that Komisar Jeski would peek in the windows. There was a lot of sexual energy in Joshua's breaking and enterings, and that wasn't calculated into this sentencing. So Josh goes to prison, and immediately they start preparing him for release, really. In 2006, he gets out of prison, and he has a custody battle with Jada's mother. Jada's mother, for her part, wins the custody battle. She gets full custody, but Joshua does get visitation. So it's 2006. Now Joshua is out on parole. He's got an ankle bracelet tracking him. Parole division does help him find work at some type of restoration place where he goes from home to home and all this. And he actually did pretty well on it. He does well in structured environments, but left to his own devices, Joshua kind of just sinks to the lowest common denominator. So in prison and then later in a halfway house, this is where Joshua meets Stephen Hayes. They both had a massive interest in drugs and prepubescent girls. So they hit it off well. By 2007, Joshua had been working out well on parole didn't miss work, and they took the ankle bracelet off. And this was the worst mistake the state of Connecticut ever could make. Three days later, both Komisarjewski and Hayes began their B&E spree in the Cheshire area. They break into the first of three homes just three days after the ankle bracelet was taken off Komisarjewski's leg. Okay, guys, let me introduce you to Mr. Stephen Hayes. Mr. Hayes was 44 at the time of his arrest in 2007. His first prison stint began in 1980. So this kid was a loser from Jump Street. Stephen was described by local police as a typical junkie, not super violent, not very smart, just an absolute drug addict. He ended up serving time in 17 different prisons from 1980 on. He was always in and out of prison, he was basically institutionalized. So Stephen Hayes, in October of 2003, was just starting a five-year sentence for breaking and entering. His thing was to break and enter into cars. He'd steal what was ever in there, change, money, whatever. 
So Hayes begins his five-year bid in 2003. It was around this time that he came into contact with Komisar Jevsky. 2003 rolls around. I believe it was Hayes who got out first on parole. It's a never-ending cycle of offense, parole, probation, back and forth. So Hayes got out first, couldn't find work. He couldn't find a job, and his mother was pressuring for money. So at the same time, when this was happening in Hayes' life, Komisarjevsky was going to be getting out, and they had talked in prison about doing some jobs together, burglaries together. So they had no intention of stopping. Hayes was living in Winstead, Connecticut, and Stephen Hayes was raised by a single mother, him and his brother Brian, and neighbors would always complain about how severely Stephen and Brian had fought. They were very violent towards each other. Stephen developed a penchant for hard drugs and was known to the local cops, Winstead, that whole area. He was very well known as a guy who would break into cars and homes. And to have him team up with Komisar Jevsky, it was just a perfect storm of sociopathy, really. So it would come out during the investigation of the Pettit murders that Komisar Jevsky and Hayes were communicating via text message, and Hayes was adamant about their arrangement to start breaking into places. He needed to get out of his mother's house, apparently. He was going to be kicked out of his mother's house for drug use that she knew about, and that would violate his parole. So he needed to get a couple thousand dollars going pretty quickly, and he was bugging Komisar Jeski to start their burglary spree, and they did. During the time frame from July 21st through July 23rd, 2007, the duo Komisar Jeski and Hayes would break into three homes. The first two homes were strikeouts. They didn't get much in terms of financial reward. On the third, they'd make history, but not for the reason that they thought they would. I'm going to stop here for this episode because this next portion, next week, deserves its own episode. What happened on Sunday into Monday, July 23rd, 2007, demonstrates the holes we have in our parole system letting people out of jail for violent offenses and for breaking and entries while people are home is just stupid. And it contributed directly to this triple homicide. So I'm going to leave you there with this episode and we'll get into it more next week. But keep in mind, these people should have never been on the street and this never would have happened. All right, guys, I'm going to leave you there. Just want to say thank you again. We've reached 13,000 downloads in 25 episodes. So that's a pretty big deal in the podcasting world, and I wanted to say thank you. Also, have a great Christmas and a happy holiday season. You'll be reviewing this episode, I believe, on the Monday before Christmas. So I hope your stockings are full, and there'll be a little snow on the ground for your white Christmas. All right, guys. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, and I'll see you on the flip side. <laughs>